0: Hi, this is Abigail, and today we're reading Chapter 2 of The Wednesday Wars. This is Reading with Abigail. Let's go. The Wednesdays of September passed in a cloudy haze of chalk dust. At 1.45, the bus arrived from Temple Beth-El to spring half of my class. At 1.55, the bus arrived from St. Adalbert's to spring the other half, even Macy, who had to go to Catechism since it was Catholic Relief Agency that brought her over from Vietnam, and I guess they figured that she owed them, even though she wasn't Catholic. Then Mrs. Baker and I sat alone, facing each other. The classroom clock clicked off the minutes. She was probably considering what she could legally do to remind me how regrettable it was that my family was Presbyterian. There's no point teaching you something new, she said. You'd just hear it a second time tomorrow. So that the first Wednesday I washed all the chalkboards. Then I straightened the Thorndike Dictionaries and washed all the chalkboards again since Sarah Streaky. Then I went outside and pounded the erasers against the brick wall of Camille Junior High until the white chalk dust spread up around me, settling in my hair and in my eyes and up my nose and down my throat so that I figured I was probably going to end up with some sort of lung disease that would kill me before the end of the school year, all because I happened to be Presbyterian. The second Wednesday of September and the third, and the fourth, and Wednesdays on t- into October were pretty much the same. I got good at the chalkboards, so Mrs. Baker added putting up her bulletin boards with microscopic pins and leveling tools, and sweeping down the cobwebs fr- from the asbestos t- tiles on the ceiling, and wiping the grime of sweaty hands off the lower half of the windows, and pushing them all up so that, as Mrs. Baker said, fresh air could circulate in the classroom, which it really needed since once air reached the coat room, and landed on all the stuff from the lunches that had been checked into the corners because they were too vile to eat even when they were fresh. Lunches like liverwurst sandwiches. So after I got good at the windows, Mrs. Baker got me cleaning up the coat room. What I didn't clean out was a stash that the Swedish was handing to prepare for number 166. So far, there was a box of topiaca pudding, a bag of marshmallows that had been smashed to a sticky pulp, a half dozen ragged feathers, a bottle of red ink, and a plastic bag with something awful in it. Probably something dead. He added it all in a small box from A&P stuffed on a shelf above the coats. I didn't touch any of it. And do you think I complained about this? Do you think I complained about picking up old lunches that had fungus growing on them and sweeping the asbestos tiles and straightening thorn-dark dictionaries? No, I didn't. Not once. Not even when I looked out the clean lower windows as the afternoon light of autumn changed to mellow and full yellows and the air turned so sweet and cold they wanted to drink it. And as people began to burn leaves on the sides of the streets and the lovely smoke came into the back of your nose and told you it was autumn, and what were you doing smelling chalk dust and old liverwurst sandwiches instead? Why didn't I complain? Because after the first week in October, the Baker's Sporting Emporium was narrowed its architect choices down to two. Hood Associates and Kowalski Associates. And so, every single night after supper, before Walter Conkite and, um began reporting, my father said to me, Still hauling? everything all right with Mrs. Baker? And I answered, Just swell. Keep it that way, he'd say. So I didn't complain. Still, you would have thought that since this was all happening because I was Presbyterian, God would have seen it to the Yankees, would have played in the World Series pay me back for my persecution. But were they? Of course not. This girl wasn't fair that way. The Boston Red Sox were playing instead. And let me tell you, everyone knows the Boston Red Sox aren't going to win another World Series. Never. Not even if they have three Carl Carl Yomskys, which they don't. Doug Sweetik's brother was still not back in school. Doug Sweetik told us why. The ten days of observation had been pure delight for him, but when no one had found any behavior beyond his usual weariness, he realized that he would be coming back to school again pretty soon. So the evening before he was to return, when he came to his classroom with Mrs. Sweetick to meet with his teacher, Doug Sweetick's brother walked up to the chalkboard and pounded the erasers against his head. Since Mr. Ludema didn't have someone like me around to pound him against the brick walls every Wednesday afternoon, Doug Sweden's brother turned white after about four poundings. Then he took two long pieces of chalk, stuck them in his mouth like fangs, and went howling and roaring and slobbering out into the hallway. The school was mostly deserted, so it really was just a dumb luck that Ms., Mrs. Sidman who had decided to leave her new post in the main administrative office, had come into school that particular evening to clean up the last of her personal effects. I think her screams echoed up and down the halls of Camille Jr. High until dawn. That bought Doug Sweet's brother another four weeks of medical observation. It was pretty clear from Mrs. Baker's glares the next morning that somehow she thought this was all my fault, which it wasn't. I didn't have a thing to do with it. When someone hates your guts, truth, justice, and the American way don't mean all that much. On Wednesday, when we all stood up to go to Mrs. Petrelli's geography class, Mrs. Baker stopped glaring. In fact, as we walked out with geography for you and me in our hands, She started to smile at me, but I got worried. She looked like those evil geniuses who suddenly figured out a plan to conquer the world and can already imagine Earth's population quivering in their grasp. It was all I could do not to sprint out of Mrs. Baker's classroom, even though we weren't supposed to run the halls to the safe world of junior high geography. Mr. Petrie believed that no class was worth anything without a study question date sheet. He dittoed days off like a major publisher. His hands were always blue from the ink, mostly because he hauled the dittos out from the machine while they were still wet from the alcohol, the smell of which gave the room a tang. Well, out in pairs. You have forty three minutes. Forty three minutes. Teachers don't reckon time the way pe- the way normal people do. When Mary Lee came to me, came over to me, I said, par- partner, I was still wondering why Missus Baker had smiled. Are you all right?" Mary Lee asked. "Just well, holding your pen upside down. Thanks for pointing that out, Detective Kowalski. You're very welcome. Did you think you can figure out the answers while I write them down on the sheet?" How do you figure have the answers? Well, I write them down. Gee, because I know how to write. What's the first state? Delaware. Do you think Mrs. Baker looks like an evil genius? Not unless you're paranoid. What's the second state? And not paranoid. Pennsylvania. Mrs. Baker hates my guts. Mrs. Baker doesn't hate your guts. And you are too pa- paranoid. What's the third state? Well, Thank you for your vote of confidence. New York. Mary Lee looked over at geography for you and me. New York wasn't the third state. It was New Jersey, not New York. How do you know that? Everybody knows that, she said. Oh, out beyond Mr. Petrily's not-so-clean lower windows, it was one of those perfect blue autumn days when the sun is warm and the grass is still green and the leaves are red and tipped with yellow. Well, we are going to have to Finish chapter two next time but stay tuned and make sure to subscribe and leave a comment bye she she looked down at the class roll may see Huang, she called she looked up to find may raised hand and nodded but before she looked down mrs baker looked at me again and this time her eyes really did roll Then she looked down again at her list. Daniel Humper, she called, and she looked up to find Danny's raised hand, and then she turned to look at me again. Marilee Kowalski, she she called. She found Marilee's hand and looked at me again. She did this every time she looked up to find somebody's hand. She was watching me because she hated my guts. I walked back to the perfect house slowly that afternoon. I could always tell when I got there without looking up, because the sidewalk changed. Suddenly, all the cement squares were perfectly white, and none of them had a single crack, not one. This was also true of the cement squares of the walkway leading up to the perfect house, which were bordered perfectly perfectly matching azalea bushes all the same height all turning between pink and white blossoms the cement squares and azaleas stopped stopped at the perfect stoop three steps like every other stoop on the block and when you're up to the two-story colonial with two windows on each side and two dormers on the second floor it was like every other house on the block, except neater, because my father had it painted perfectly white every other year, except for the fake aluminum shutters, which were black, and the aluminum screen door, which gleamed dully and never, ever squeaked when you opened it. Inside, I dropped my books on the stairs. Mom, I called. I thought about getting something to eat. A Twinkie, maybe. Then chocolate milk that had more chocolate than milk. And then another Twinkie. After all that sugar, I heard I'd be able to come up with something on how to live with Mrs. Baker for nine months. Either that or I wouldn't care anymore. Mom, I called again. I walked past the perfect living room where no one ever sat because all the seat cushions were covered in stiff, clear plastic. You could walk in there and think that everyone was... For sale. It was so perfect. The part, the carpet looked like it had never been walked on, which it almost hadn't. And the baby gr- grand by the window looked like it had never been played, which it hadn't, since none of us could. But if anything, or or, but if anyone had ever walked in and and a key or. Sniffed the artificial tropical flowers or strained a tie in the gleaming mirror, they sure would have been impressed at the perfect life of an architect from Hood and Associates. My mother was in the kitchen fanning air out the open window and putting out a a cigarette because I wasn't supposed to to know that she smoked. Because if I didn't know, I wasn't supposed to say anything, and I really wasn't supposed to tell my father. And that's when it really came to me, even before the Twinkie. I needed to have an alley in the war against Mrs. Baker. How was your first day, my mother said. Mom, I said, Mrs. Baker hates my guts. Mrs. Baker doesn't hate her guts. She stopped panting and closed my window. Yes, she does. Mrs. Baker hardly knows you. Mom, it's not like you have to know someone well to hate their guts. You don't sit around and have a long conversation and decide whether or not to hate your guts. They... You just do. Um. Um. You just do. And she does. I'm sure that Mrs. Baker is a fine person, and she certainly does not hate your guts. How do parents get to... Where they can say things like this. must be from Jean that switches on on at birth of the firstborn child, and suddenly stuff like this, stuff like that starts to come out of their mouths. It's like they haven't figured out that the language you're using is English, and they should be able to understand what you're saying. Instead, you pull a string on them, and a bad record plays. Guess they can't help it. Right after supper, I went to the dental for my a new alley. Dad, Mrs. Baker hates my guts. Can you s- see that television is on and then I'm watching Walter Cronkite? Sh- he said, we listened to Wal- Walter Cronkite report on the new casualty f- figures from Vietnam and how the air war was being widened and how two new brigades of the um of the 1st Airborne Division were being sent over until CBS finally threw in, in a commercial. Dad, Mrs. Baker hates my guts. What did you do? I didn't do anything. She hates my guts. People don't just hate your guts unless you do something to them. So what did you do? Nothing. This is Betty Baker, right? I guess. The Betty Baker who belongs to the Baker family? See what I mean about that jean thing? They missed the entire point of what you're saying. I guess she belongs to the Baker family, I, I said. The Baker family that owns the Baker Sporting Emporium? Dad, she hates my guts. The Baker Sporting Emporium, which is about to choose an architect for its new building, and which is considering Hoodhood hood and Associates among its top three to- choices. Dad, so, Holland, what did you do that might make message-baker hate your guts, Wh- which will make other Baker ha- family members hate the name of Hoodhood, which will lead the Baker supporting important to choose another architect, which will kill the deal for Hoodhood and Associates, which will drive us into bankruptcy, which will encourage several lending institutions around the state to to send representatives to our front step holding... Papers that have lots of legal words on them, none of them good, in which would mean that there'd be no and Associates for you to take over when I'm, when I'm ready to retire. Even though there wasn't much left of the ham and cheese and broccoli on it, it started to want to come up again. I guess things aren't so bad, I said. Keep them that way, he said. This wasn't exactly what I had hoped for, Aaron Alley. It was only my sister left. To ask your big sister to be your alley is like asking Nova Scotia to go into battle with you. But I knocked on her door anyway, loudly, since the monkey since monkeys playing. She pulled it open and said, "Their hands on her hips. Her lipstick was the color of a new fire engine." Mrs. Baker hates my guts, I told her. So do I, she said. I could use some help with this, asked Mom. She, she says that Mrs. Baker doesn't hate my guts. Asked Dad. Silence. If, if we call it silence when the monkeys are playing. Silence. If you call it it's silence when the monkeys are playing. Oh, she said. It might hurt a business deal, right? So he won't help the son who is going into Inherent Hoodhood and Associates. What am I supposed to do? If I were you, I'd head to California, she said. Try again. She leaned against her door. Mrs. Baker hates your guts, right? I nodded. Then, Holly, you might try getting some. And close the door. That night, I read Treasure Island again. I don't want to brag, but I read Treasure Island four times. It kidnapped twice, The Black Arrow twice. I even read, even how, oh, halfway through before I gave up, since I started The Call of the Wild, and it was a whole lot better. I skipped the part where Jim Hawkins is stealing the Hispaniol, and he's up on the mast in Israel, hands is grabbing is climbing toward him clutching a dagger even so jim's in pretty good shape since he's got two pistols against a single dagger and and the israel hands seems about to give in i'll have to strike which comes hard he says i suppose I suppose he hates Jim's guts right at that moment. And Jim smiles, since he knows he's got him. That's guts. But then Israel hands her the dagger, and it's just dumb luck that's, that saves Jim. And I didn't want to count on just dumb luck. Okay, next episode, we'll have to finish this chapter. But... Tune in tomorrow for another episode of Reading with Abigail. Bye!